welcome to This Week in the History of Psychology for February 25th through March 3rd. This is your host, Christopher Green of York University in Toronto, Canada. In this episode, we'll first take a brief look at some of the most important events that happened during This Week in Psychology's past. Then we'll have our feature interview with Professor William Tucker on the controversy surrounding the intelligence research of Cyril Burt. Finally, we'll celebrate the birthdays of some important psychologists. All this and more on this installment of This Week in the History of Psychology. February 25th. In 1937, the Journal of Consulting Psychology was first published by the Association of Consulting Psychologists, with Johnny P. Simons serving as editor. The American Psychological Association acquired the journal in 1946, and in 1968 the name of the journal became the Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychology. For February 26th, in 1968, Walter Michel's book, Personality and Assessment, was published. For February 27th, in 1798, the state of Massachusetts passed a law providing for the involuntary confinement of any person, quote, lunatic or so furiously mad as to render it dangerous to the peace or to the safety of the good people for such a lunatic person to go at large, end quote. For February 28th, in 1939, the book by John Dollard, Leonard Dube, Neil Miller, O. Hobart Mower, and Robert Sears called Frustration and Aggression was first published. And also on February 28th in 1940, Ernest Hilgard and Donald Marquis's book Conditioning and Learning was first published. For March 1st, in 1886, James McKean Cattell passed his doctoral examinations at the University of Leipzig under Wilhelm Wundt. Also on March 1st in 1912, Walter B. Cannon and A.L. Washburn's article, An Explanation of Hunger, describing a classic study in which balloons were inflated in the stomach, was published in the American Journal of Physiology. For March 3rd, in 1855, Congress officially founded the first federal mental hospital. The legislation, written by the reformer Dorothea Dix, called for the most humane care and enlightened curative treatment of the insane of the Army and Navy and of the District of Columbia. Also on March 3rd in 1907, in Vienna at 10 a.m., Carl Jung first met Sigmund Freud. Also on March 3rd in 1908, John B. Watson accepted a faculty position at Johns Hopkins University. His starting salary was $3,000 per year. March 3rd, 1883, was the birth date of one of England's most celebrated and most criticized psychologists, Sir Cyril Burt. Burt's decades-long string of research publications seemed to firmly establish the genetic heritability of intelligence, but soon after his death, questions began to be raised about the quality and even the existence of the research on which he had built so illustrious a career that he had been knighted by Queen Elizabeth. 
On the line to talk to us about Cyril Burt's life and legacy is Dr. William Tucker of Rutgers University in Camden, New Jersey. Professor Tucker is the author of the article Reconsidering Burt, Beyond a Reasonable Doubt, published in the Journal of the History of the Behavioral Sciences in 1998, and also of the book The Funding of Scientific Racism, Wycliffe Draper and the Pioneer Fund, published by University of Illinois Press in 2002. Professor Tucker, well, could you please uh, start by telling us something about Cyril Burt's background? Uh, what sort of family did he come from, and where was he educated? Well, whatever one thinks of Burt, this uh, controversial person in the history of psychology, there's no doubt that he was an incredible polymath. He was knowledgeable about many different areas. Uh, you know, the kind of person you want to have as a phone a friend on a quiz show. And much of this came from his upbringing. His English father was a country doctor, but also a classical scholar who taught Bert Latin at an early age. And from his paternal grandfather, Bert also learned German and the basics of science. Uh, on his mother's side, uh, his Welsh mother gave him an interest in art. And in fact, her brother, Bert's uncle, was a serious painter. And years, years later, Bert recalled that as a youngster, he had no toys of what he called uh, the usual childish type. All his Christmas and birthday presents from his parents were always books and art materials. So he had a very kind of high-powered educational influence at home. Uh, unsurprisingly, when he was 11 years old, Bert won a scholarship to a prestigious private school. And in addition to the assigned curriculum, he studied lots of other topics on his own. And when he was 15 years old, Bert read the entry in the Encyclopedia Britannica on psychology, and he took copious notes that he still had decades later. In his early teens, Bert also read the work of Francis Galton, the founder of the eugenics movement. And this would be sometime in the early 1890s, that is, before eugenics became really popular. But Bert already knew who Galton was because Bert's father had held Galton up to the sun as the ideal man. Um, eventually, Bert went on to win a scholarship in classics at Oxford. But while he was there, he also took courses in anthropology, physiology, and many other subjects, and then selected psychology as a special subject for his final exam. And for a, f a short time, he was M William McDougall's only student. Uh, McDougall was arguably the most important psychologist in the world at the time. And then, of course, Bert finally decided to uh, pursue his own career in what he called individual psychology. Mm -hmm. Well, now, Bert is probably most famous for the series of studies he did on in the intelligence of identical twins who'd been separated soon after birth. Uh, what was the logic behind those studies, and what did they purport to show? Well, <clears throat> studying separated identical twins, or as they're called, uh, MZAs, monozygotic twins reared apart, uh, studying MZAs is the simplest method for estimating what's called the heritability of a trait. Heritability is a specialized statistic in behavior genetics, and it refers to the proportion of observed differences in a trait that are due to genetic differences. That is, it's a, a, a measure of genetic influence on the differences in a trait from one person to another. The problem is that it's impossible to assess heritability directly because there really is no observable measure of genetic variation. But it can be shown, you know, with some algebra, that the correlation between the scores of MZAs on some trait is equal to the heritability, but only under certain assumptions. The most important of these assumptions is that there's no correlation between the environments in which the separated twins are raised. This is usually not the case. That is, separated twins tend to be raised in homes similar to each other, especially in socioeconomic status. Well, at the time of Bert's death, there had been four large studies of MZAs. One was done in, in Denmark with 12 pairs, one in the United States. There were 19 pairs of twins. 
the Shield study also in England with 44 pairs, and Burt's 1966 study, which had 53 pairs of separated twins. So not only was Burt's study the largest of its kind at the time, but also the only one ever, and this is still true, that could claim to satisfy this assumption of zero correlation between the twins' environments. Burt claimed to have gathered data on the socioeconomic status of the homes, and amazingly, the correlation between the homes was essentially zero. That is, if one member of a twin pair was raised by an Oxford Don, then the other twin was as likely to be raised as by a farmer or an unskilled laborer as by another professional. Everyone in the field agreed at the time that Burt's was the most important study of its kind. The, the famous uh, English psychologist Hans Eysenck actually insisted that because of the lack of correlation between the homes, Burt's study was the only one in which the calculation of heritability had any meaning. Mm-hmm. Well, but then in the 1970s, uh, soon after Burt's death, people such as the American psychologist Leon Kamen began to question the value of Burt's numbers. Well, why was that? Well, there's an interesting backstory to Kamen's involvement in this issue. In 1971, Richard Hernstein published a very controversial article in a popular magazine in the United States, arguing that because of the high heritability of intelligence, the society was heading towards a genetically stratified meritocracy, you know, with smart people essentially in the upper class. It was this article that 23 years later was expanded into the well-known book, The Bell Curve. But sometime after this article had appeared, Hernstein was invited to give a colloquium at Princeton on his specialty, which was pigeon behavior, and he didn't want to have to face questions about his piece on intelligence. In fact, he just had this hostile experience at the University of Iowa. So he wrote to the chair of the psychology department at Princeton, Leon Kamen, demanding guarantees that would, there would be no questions about intelligence at Princeton. Kamen responded that the university would ensure that there would be no disruption or harassment, but the university could not interfere with the members of the audience's right to ask whatever they wanted during the question and answer period, and hearing that, Hernstein refused to come. So in place of the scheduled talk, the psychology department held an open discussion chaired by Kamen on free speech in the university, and Kamen stressed to the students who were critical of Hernstein that they really couldn't infringe on his right to speak. At the end of the discussion, one of these students said that he understood the civil libertarian position, but he wanted to know if Kamen had, in fact, read Hernstein's article. And Kamen said that he hadn't, and the student responded that, well, Kamen really had some responsibility to see what other people were saying in the name of his discipline of psychology. Uh, Kamen, whose specialty was rat running, uh, there's something in the rat running literature called the Kamen effect, uh, he took this challenge from the student seriously. So now he turned to Hernstein's article, and when he read it, he saw that it relied heavily on Burt's studies as evidence for the high heritability of intelligence. So Kerman came and decided to read Burt's work for himself, not just the twin studies, but this considerable body of research that Burt had published on the topic of heritability. And what he found first was that it was impossible to tell what Burt had done in many cases. For example, Burt never explained exactly how he measured intelligence in adults. The closest he came to a description of the procedure was in an obscure footnote that stated that he had, quote, relied chiefly on personal interviews, but in doubtful or borderline cases, an open or camouflage test was employed. Well, this quote made it sound like Bert just guessed at the IQs on the basis of an interview. But the most suspicious finding on Kamen's part, when he looked at Bert's work, was the strange stability of the correlations between intelligence scores in the MZA study as the sample size increased steadily over time. Bert reported this 
famous MZA data in five different papers, each new one with a larger sample size that reflected the additional MZA cases that had been located since the previous study and added to the database. So the first such, such study had only 15 pairs. Then there was a study with 21 pairs, followed by a sample size of over 30, 42, and then finally in the most famous paper, 53 pairs of separated twins. But even though the sample size was steadily increasing, Kamen saw that the correlation between the test scores of the MZAs remained identical to three decimal places in three of the last four publications. This obviously just wasn't credible. Although Kamen was pretty certain by now that Burt's data were fraudulent, without more evidence, he didn't make any accusation and suggested only that the numbers left behind by Professor Burt simply weren't worthy of serious scientific attention. Mm-hmm. Well, and then Bert's biographer, Leslie Hearnshaw, concluded that it was very unlikely that Bert had actually gotten the results he reported. Indeed, he may not have even carried out some of these studies. Uh, could you tell us about that? Yeah, th- there's a progression to Hearnshaw's biography that actually a few years after came and exposed these weaknesses in Bert's data, then there were the first public charges of fraud, and they came from Oliver Gilly, who was the medical correspondent for the Times of London. When Gilly read Kamen's analysis of Burt, he set out to find the two collaborators that had been named in Burt's articles, two women, J, that's initial J, that was never a first name given for her, Conway, and Margaret Howard. Each of these women had been listed as a co-author on one of Burt's papers on the genetics of intelligence, and between the two of them, they published more than a dozen other papers or reviews, every one of them in the British Journal of Statistical Psychology, for which Burt was the sole editor. Neither woman ever contributed anything in print, not a note or an article to any other journal. So Gilly searched all the institutional records, and he couldn't find a mention of either woman. Eventually, he was told by officials of the British Psychological Society that they, too, had been approached by people seeking permission to to quote from either Conway's or Howard's articles. But whenever he uh, asked about their whereabouts, Bert always said that they were out of the country or otherwise unavailable. And the officials from the society told Gilly that they had come to the conclusion that the two women, Conway and Howard, were really used as pen names by Bert. Well, in combination with the weaknesses noted by Kamen, this new information led Gilly to conclude that Bert had faked the data. And he wrote exactly that in a front-page article, a sensational piece in the Times of London. Well, Bert's supporters were furious. I think actually uh, insisted that the British Psychological Society lodge a formal complaint with the Times about Gilly's ethics. And Arthur Jensen, the famous educational psychologist at Berkeley, said that if Bert were alive, he could win a libel suit against the Times. But these people soon piped down when Leslie Earnshaw, a historian of science, published a full-length biography of Bert. Earnshaw had been given access to all of Bert's personal papers, and after going through them, he decided that the IQ scores for the MZAs had been constructed long after publication of the journal articles that reported the correlations between them. In fact, Bert's diaries showed, according to Hernshaw, that he only made up the scores after researchers in the United States had asked to see the original data. Hernshaw also concluded that Bert had committed other transgressions. Not only were Conway and Howard his aliases, but Bert had concocted a whole family of characters who contributed fake letters and notes and reviews to his journal. In addition, Bert had fabricated other data, Hernshaw uh, uh, concluded, confirming his contention that there had been a decline in educational standards over the previous half century. And finally, according to Earnshaw, Bert had attempted to revise the history of the development of factor analysis to give himself more credit and to play down Charles Spearman's role. Bert's supporters had dismissed Kamen 
as an outsider, an animal learning researcher who wasn't really familiar with psychometrics, and he was a far left winger to boot with an ideological agenda, though they, they had a difficult time avoiding his criticisms. And they'd been outraged by Gilly's libelous accusations, but Earnshaw was really above suspicion. He had delivered the address at Bert's funeral and declared, in what turned out to be painfully ironic, that Bert set standards which have influenced profoundly all subsequent work. It was really much more difficult for them to dispute his conclusions. And so, through the next decade, the issue was settled, and even his supporters concluded for a time that Bert was a fraud. Mm-hmm. Well, then, starting in the late 1980s, there was an effort to rehabilitate Burt, uh, which included books such as Robert Joynson's The Burt Affair and Ronald Fletcher's Science, Ideology, and the Media. What of their findings? Well, as you say, uh, in the late 80s, the early 90s, these two books, books appeared, one by Joynson, one by Fletcher, uh, each of them seeking to reverse Earnshaw's verdict and to rehabilitate Burt as the victim of political bias. Uh, both these books claim that Earnshaw had been influenced by Cayman, a socialist, and by Gilly, another left-wing sympathizer, to come to this conclusion of fraud. And they both had an explanation for the MZA data. Um, Bert hadn't made up the scores when they were requested by the U.S. researchers, but the reason that he needed the couple of weeks to construct the scores was he needed to go through the boxes of data that had been stored away for years in order to find them. It's interesting that both Joyce and Flesher also acknowledged that neither Howard nor Conway actually wrote the articles bearing their names, but neither Joynson nor Fletcher thought that this was a big deal. In fact, Fletcher actually compared Burt to Thomas Paine, who signed some of his articles Aesop or Vox Populi. In my opinion, however, there really is no reason to reevaluate Burt, that is to exonerate him. Uh, I don't think there's much doubt that he committed fraud, especially if you compare his article with any of the well-documented studies of MZAs, which are notable for the effort involved in finding and testing the individual uh, members of the twin pairs. Take the Shield study, for example, which identified 44 pairs of MZAs and was also done in England, so presumably it sampled the same underlying MZA population as Bert, uh, as Bert had or as Bert claimed to have done. In the preface to his work, Shields acknowledges the assistance of a research team involving more than 70 other professionals. That is, this is this huge project. Bert worked alone. He had no research grant. He rarely left his own residence because of, chronic, uh, because of chronic illness. And what's more, Bert imposed very strict conditions on all his MZAs, including the requirement that they had to be separated earlier than six months of age, and they couldn't be raised by different branches of the same family. In fact, only seven out of the 44 twin pairs in the Shield study would have even met the criteria satisfied by every single one of Bert's 53 pairs. Well, there are other anomalies in his reports, but in my opinion, these two elements alone make the claim that Bert actually collected such data uh, rather untenable. Mm-hmm. Let me add one thing, that in my opinion, all the attention devoted to the fraud issue also leaves unexamined an important question that, that I think really bears uh, attention. Uh, whether or not there was fraud, everyone now agrees that Burt's data are scientifically worthless. And I wonder how it is that no one with expertise in the field realized this until Kamen, an animal research, uh, an animal learning theorist, looked at this work. And I think the experts in the field really have something to answer for. Well, now, some of Burt's defenders have argued that we have to place him in his historical context. Although his strongly genetic conclusions may be unpalatable to us today, in his own time, they say, he was actually a kind of egalitarian, fighting entrenched class privilege in Great Britain with a kind of meritocracy that would allow anyone with talent to rise to the top. What do you think of that claim? 
Well, it is true that Bert paid lip service to the use of the IQ test to identify talent wherever it might be. But if you actually read his articles, it turns out that whenever there was a possibility for bright working class students to be admitted to any of the preparatory schools, you know, the selective schools that lead to university education in the British system, uh, he would express reservations, even if they had very high intelligence test scores. After the war, for example, when there was new pressure to democratize the selective system in Britain, Bert suddenly was concerned that a child from a working class background would be a misfit in a school where the other students were predominantly from upper class homes. Such a student would come from a family that, as Bert put it, did not share the ideals of the school. Even in the early 1960s, Bert was still insisting that class distinctions were associated with certain values. So he claimed that members of the professional and upper classes prided themselves on certain principles and moral standards, even at the sacrifice of material benefits. And these parents, he argued, wanted their sons and daughters to associate only with children from families who cherished the same high principles. So in his opinion, working class children, no matter their intellectual ability, really had to be excluded from the selective schools, lest their presence create some conflict with the loftier values of their more well-to-do peers. And then finally, in what seems to me kind of a warped mirror image of the bell curve notion that democratic societies head toward genetic stratification, Bert thought it would be a misfortune for the few bright members of the working class to forsake what he called their class origins. As he put it, about such intelligent persons from the working class, their continued presence there, that is, in the working class, must help not only to elevate its tone, but to prevent its genetic constitution from being wholly depleted of its better elements. That is, the, the capable poor were to be kept away from this selective education that leads to uh, university career in order to ensure that there remain some intelligent people in the working class. And this sounds to me like it's really the very opposite of the notion of intelligence as a route to vertical mobility. And, and I believe that, that uh, Burke adhered to this notion of uh, university education as a preserve for the children of the upper class throughout his life. Well, thank you very much for this today. We've been speaking with Dr. William Tucker about the life and legacy of Sir Cyril Burt. Uh, Dr. Tucker is from Rutgers University in Camden, New Jersey, and is the author of the article Reconsidering Burt Beyond a Reasonable Doubt, published in the Journal of the History of the Behavioral Sciences in 1998, and of the book The Funding of Scientific Racism, Wycliffe Draper, and the Pioneer Fund, published in 2002 by University of Illinois Press. Dr. Tucker also has a new book, which should be coming out next year, also published by University of Illinois Press, entitled The Cattell Controversy. That book is, of course, about Raymond B. Cattell, about whom we interviewed Professor Tucker last term. If you would like to know more about the life and work of Sir Silbert, you can read some of the books that were mentioned during the interview, especially Leslie Hernshaw's biography, Cyril Burt, Psychologist, that's published by Cornell University Press in 1979, and Leon Kamen's book, The Science and Politics of IQ, published in 1974 by Lawrence Erlbaum Associates. From the rehabilitation phase of the story, there is Joynson's The Burt Affair, published in 1989 by Rutledge, and Fletcher's Science, Ideology, and the Media, published by Transaction Press in 1991. Another relevant book is Raymond E. Fancher's the Intelligence Men, Makers of the IQ Controversy, published by Norton in 1985. 
There is also a volume edited by Nicholas McIntosh entitled Cyril Burt, Fraud or Framed, published by Oxford University Press in 1995. Finally, very recently, in the fall 2006 issue of the Journal of the History of the Behavioral Sciences, you'll find an article by David Burbridge entitled Burt's Twins, A Question of Numbers. Um, in that article, Burbridge tries to determine whether or not it was possible for Burt to have found 53 pairs of identical twins separated at birth um, over the course of his long career. And in the winter 2007 issue, you will see a response to that article by William Tucker, who we just heard from, and a rejoinder by David Burbridge. And now it's time for birthdays. First, for February 25th, in 1883, Herbert Woodrow was born. Woodrow's interests were in developmental and clinical psychology, and he was American Psychological Association president in 1941. Also on February 25th, in 1919, Carl H. Prebrum was born. Prebrum's extensive work in physiological psychology has advanced a theory relating to the structural and functional organization of the brain. Also on February 25th in 1929, Jerome Kagan was born. Kagan's research in human development focused on studies of personality, self-concept, and cognitive organization. For February 26th, in 1907, John Bowlby was born. Bowlby's work on a child's attachment to a mother figure and the consequences of loss of attachment have exerted a significant influence on developmental psychology. For February 27th, in 1859, Bertha Pappenheim was born. If Pappenheim's name isn't familiar to you, she was the Anna O in Josef Breuer and Sigmund Freud's work on the cathartic method for the treatment of hysterical symptoms. Also on February 27th, in 1863, George Herbert Mead was born. Mead was a social philosopher, important to psychology because of his view the self arises from the consequences of social interaction. For February 28th, in 1892, Calvin P. Stone was born. Stone was a comparative and physiological psychologist who studied innate behavior, learning, and the effects of electroconvulsive shock in animals. He was American Psychological Association president in 1942. That's it for this episode of This Week in the History of Psychology. We would love to hear your comments on the show. You can email us at twithop, that's the initials of This Week in the History of Psychology, T-W-I-T-H-O-P at yorku, Y-O-R-K-U dot C-A. We would like to thank York University for hosting the program, as well as Michael Guimar for his technical assistance, and especially Warren Street and the American Psychological Association for their website, Today in the History of Psychology, which we use for research and from which we sometimes quote directly. This Week in the History of Psychology is the sole property of Christopher Green. The opinions expressed on This Week in the History of Psychology are not necessarily those of Christopher Green or of York University. 